I never did anything that was illegal. But we're talking about things that are misleading, that are unethical. You're getting people to make decisions based on misleading information that can have life or death consequences. So it's, it's, it's wrong. Wendell Potter grew up in rural eastern Tennessee, in a county with no hospital and a home with no bathroom. He was the first in his family to finish college and started his career as a political reporter, eventually shifting into corporate public relations. So it was a big leap from his humble upbringing to becoming a high-powered public relations executive, flying on corporate jets with gold-plated flatware. And that misleading information he was giving people that could have life or death consequences? Wendell was serving that up as the head of PR for Cigna. In other words, as the executive spin doctor for one of the biggest health insurance companies in the country. This is Reckonings. I'm Stevie Lepp, and today we are reckoning with the dark side of our corporate health insurance machine and the deceptive tales we tell to maintain it. For-profit health insurance companies make money when patients don't use their insurance and spend money when patients do. So there's kind of an unignorable conflict of interest in their business model because they make money by denying the service that they provide, which is why most insurance providers in other industrialized countries are non-profit. Cigna has a few tricks up its sleeve for denying its customers the insurance they pay for. One of them is called rescission. What happens is the insurance company, when they're faced with having to pay high medical bills, they often go back and look at the application that the person filled out at the time of, uh, of getting the policy, uh, looking for any reason to cancel it so that they could avoid paying for the needed care. And by doing that, the companies avoided paying for you know, many millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in care that people really needed and that in many cases would have meant the difference between life and death. It was uh, you know, a very, very good income. I uh, uh, was being paid more than I had ever imagined I would be, certainly far more than I was as a reporter. At the peak of his career, Wendell probably earned more in one year than his dad did in the 20-some years he worked in a brutally hot factory. And Wendell lived the corporate high life for many years. That was until 2007, when three big things happened. Kind of like a three-act play. Act one? Just kidding. Let's call it part one, Sicko. Another trick Cigna has up its sleeve for denying coverage, which Wendell was responsible for, is spin. And it was with this trick in mind that Wendell went to the premiere of the Michael Moore documentary, Sicko, which examines America's healthcare crisis and takes critical aim at our health insurance companies. He was there to take notes on what the movie had to say about Cigna, so he could formulate a counterattack. But sitting in that theater, in the dark, 
Wendell found himself, really for the first time, hearing the stories of patients he ostensibly served. One in particular involved a young girl who needed cochlear transplants to help her hear. She couldn't hear. But Cigna had denied a procedure that would have given her hearing. And you could just uh, sense the anguish the, uh, that was going on in that, in, in, in that father as he was trying to get Cigna to agree to cover a procedure that was commonly done. Uh, it was just, uh, I felt terrible. And I, I realized that, uh, wow, this, uh, this really is what a lot of people face. And I, uh, I, I had handled high-profile cases in the past and, and not, been, not, not had the ability to see the person uh, or actually talk to the patient. Uh, the, it, seeing this film was different because I actually saw the people and heard them. They weren't just names and numbers. They became real flesh and blood. Still, Wendell went on to develop and execute a PR campaign to discredit the film. The idea was to scare Americans from a quote-unquote government takeover of our healthcare system. And it was this kind of fear-mongering that resulted in the nonsensical slogan, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Given how moved he was by the film, Wendell was not particularly thrilled about embarking on a sicko discrediting crusade. I, I, I was conflicted about it. I agreed to do it, but uh, I was not uh, happy with myself for just going along and doing it. And the campaign paid off. Although Sicko grossed $25 million at the box office, that was nowhere near Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11, which had grossed $120 million only three years earlier. And by all accounts, the campaign prevented Sicko from changing public opinion on health care. Part 2, Remote Area Medical A couple weeks after watching Sicko, Wendell was visiting family back home in Tennessee. He saw an ad in the local paper for a health fair put on by an organization called Remote Area Medical, providing free medical services to people without access to basic health care. He was still feeling torn about the work he was doing to discredit the film, so he took the bold move for a health insurance executive and decided to go to the fair. It was just an entirely different world. It was as if I had walked out of my reality into a war-torn country, or what I could have imagined would have been a refugee camp. There were uh, hundreds and hundreds of people who were standing in many different long, long lines to get care. And some of those lines led to barns and animal stalls. Remote Area Medical organizes pop-up health fairs in remote areas around the country and the world. 
An army of volunteer doctors and nurses and dentists set up camp for a couple days to treat people without access to basic health care for free. Those people, thousands of them for each fair, travel sometimes for hundreds of miles and wait in line sometimes for days to get the most basic medical procedures in the likes of barns and animal stalls. I just assumed that everybody there was uninsured. And I remember one man telling me that he was in a, a plan with these high deductibles or he just couldn't afford to get the care that he needed because he would have to pay so much out of pocket. That's why he was there. But when I heard that from this man standing at line waiting to get care, um, frankly, in an animal stall, uh, that just really stunned me. A deductible is the amount of money you have to pay out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. So a high deductible plan means you have to pay more before your insurance covers you. But many of the patients in these plans, like the man Wendell was talking to, can't actually afford their deductibles. So their insurance doesn't kick in and they don't get care. Had everyone attending the remote area medical health fair been uninsured, like Wendell assumed, the scene would have been bad, but not such a burden on his conscience. Those people without insurance, they're not Cigna patients. But as it turns out, 40% of people who attend remote area medical fairs do have insurance. And it's due to the shenanigans insurance companies pull that their insurance doesn't get them the care they need. In fact, Wendell had led PR campaigns to get Cigna patients into precisely those kinds of high-deductible plans. And being near where he grew up, it all felt especially personal. Looking in the eyes of those people, looking at their faces, people I grew up with could have been in those lines. Uh, I could have been one of those people in those lines. These were my people, uh, and, and then realizing that, oh my God, what is going on here? Uh, what I was doing was making it necessary in one way or another for people to get care that way. Part three, and the grand finale of the three-part play, the case of a girl named Nataline Sarkeesian. Nataline was a teenager, Armenian-American, living in L.A., loved fashion, and had recurrent leukemia. She needed a liver transplant, but Cigna was refusing to cover it, despite the advice of her doctors. This was a life-or-death situation. And Nataline's story was starting to generate bad publicity, which is why it came across Wendell's desk. At first, I was kind of uh, ambivalent about the case. I, in my job, had handled a lot of high-profile cases. Uh, it just was one of many cases that had come to my attention. And I thought, well, there would be some way that this will be resolved and it'll be off my plate sooner rather than later. 
when that didn't happen and I became more aware of the actual circumstances involved in this case, I became increasingly troubled about the way the case was being handled internally at Cigna. Basically, Natalie's doctors had been urging Cigna to cover the transplant. But Cigna had stalled to the point where Natalie's condition had worsened so much that the transplant could be deemed too experimental to cover under her plan. In other words, Cigna had dragged its feet to the point where it could justify not covering a life-saving procedure for a teenage girl who happened to be almost the same age as Wendell's own daughter. I came to to realize that we're talking about a young 17-year-old girl, and I could just imagine uh, what it what the family must have been going through. Uh, I let myself go there to imagine what this family uh, was trying to do to save their daughter's life. But I was expected to be the, the spokesperson for the company, and I was becoming conflicted. Uh, I found myself being more engaged in it than I had been in any other case that ever came before me. The case became a national media sensation. And in response, Cigna finally agreed to cover Natalie Sarkeesian's liver transplant. But it was too late. Just hours after Cigna announced its decision, which Wendell himself communicated to the media, Natalie died. Wendell was at Cigna when he found out. I was in my office, and uh, I, I, I do recall just closing the door um, and uh, uh, wanting to be alone. It was a very emotional thing for me. I, I really had thought just hours before that she would live. You know, I, I was not responsible, I don't think, for, for Natalie's death, but I was a player in the, in the, the drama of, of Natalie's story. Well, I'm, I'm confident that I, I, I cried. There was a period of time that I was, uh, I was able to be alone, an hour maybe. Uh, you know, pretty soon I was starting to get phone calls, so it wasn't something that I could, I, I couldn't just hide. Uh, I had, I had to get back into the mode of being PR guy. Many, if not most of us, maybe all of us, have this feeling that, well, I'm here for a reason, and I don't think this is it. I don't think what I'm doing is it. So what is it? I don't know. But something was was tugging at me. Something was uh, uh, bothering me uh, that uh, I need to be doing something that is not just for my benefit. Uh, I need to be doing something that is better than this. I'm better than this. I've got to figure this out. What is it? It was very unsettling. Uh, I was in my mid-50s. I, uh, uh, I didn't have another job lined up. Uh, what do I do with this feeling, uh, with this crisis of conscience? How do I act on it? Can I? Or should I just uh, uh, live with it, uh, compartmentalize it, and just keep going on? I, 
I'm 10 years away from retirement, so uh, I can just hang in there and uh, before you know it, I'll be out of here. Uh, but then I realized, my gosh, that's just waiting to die. I mean, that's not even living. When I got that news that uh, uh, Nataline had died, um, it just took something out of me. I, I just, I didn't have it in me to handle a high-profile case. I did that on many occasions during my career, and I just didn't want to do it again. Pretty soon after that, I turned in my resignation. Cigna, Wendell saw an interview with Tennessee Congressman Zach Womp on TV. Obama had just kicked off on national health care reform, and Womp was being asked what he thought about it. The congressman from my home state uh, started using language that I recognized, that my colleagues and I had written that we wanted to make sure it got into the hands of people like him. For example, he was asked about well, don't you think that uh, with 50 million people uninsured, that's a big problem? And he said, well, you know, uh, the reality is that half of those people are that way by choice, and they've just decided to go naked. And he pronounced it naked, as I remember, uh, with Tennessee dialect. Uh, that was a word that we'd used many times that we'd wanted to get people to say. So I knew when he said that, that uh, a lobbyist had, had slipped him the talking points that the strategy that I've been a part of in creating was being implemented. Uh, and, and Zach Womp was a, a pawn in that strategy. And the, the whole purpose of that strategy was to derail reform. And I was just watching it on the TV in the kitchen. And I said, all right, I can't, I can't stay on the sidelines any longer. That's it. I'm going to make a phone call. And I did that very day. Uh, started calling people who I thought might help connect me to people involved in healthcare reform advocacy to offer any help that I might be able to offer them. It was, uh, I think, probably the scariest day of my life. I remember they, they asked me to come into uh, kind of an anti-rumored office off of the hearing room. And I sat there breathing and collecting my thoughts. Uh, I knew before ever saying a word that once I gave my testimony, my life was going to be changing because I knew from the work that I'd done to discredit Michael Moore that the industry had no reservations about coming after someone's character and, and trying to destroy them if necessary. Wendell was going public. He had decided to testify before Congress on the intimate details of our health insurance industry's deceptive practices. While I was giving the testimony, I felt 
it's a kind of freedom that, wow, I'm able to say things truthfully uh, about the way things really are and, and speak truth without any kind of a, a need to filter them. Uh, it, was, it was freeing. For so many years, I had been a spokesman for an industry, and I realized that this is what I am supposed to be doing. This is, I'm supposed to be a truth teller. I'm no, I'm no saint for doing what I'm doing. Uh, I played a role uh, over the years in people not getting the care that they needed. For the rest of my life, I'll be doing something to make amends for the wrongs that I've caused. And he decided he wanted to make amends with Natalie Sarkeesian's parents. Two years after her death, NBC arranged for Wendell to visit them in their home. I, I knew that it would be a difficult meeting. And I walked in the door and it was, you know, it was... Um, it was... I can't say I was warmly embraced. I wasn't. I think it was uh, it was a, 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 a distance between us. Uh, and I, uh, Mrs. Sarkeesian did most of the talking. Uh, she uh, she wanted me to know about Nataline. She wanted me to understand what the world lost. And she took me into uh, Nataline's bedroom to to see where she uh, where you know her things. It was as you know, just as it was when she left for the hospital. Uh, you know that was hard to see. Uh, I would, I did a lot of listening, and I, uh, uh, I wanted to just say I'm sorry. I didn't have anything else to say. And just in the course of conversation, we became human beings trying to connect with each other. And things began to change. Indeed, things changed. That meeting ended in the beginning of a friendship between Wendell and the Sarkeesians, and the beginning of a collaboration on healthcare reform advocacy. Insurance companies spend hundreds of thousands of dollars per year on PR and lobbying campaigns like the ones Wendell waged at Cigna. So, perversely, a chunk of the money Americans spend on health insurance goes towards preventing us from being able to use that health insurance, which has very real consequences. It's been estimated that the lack of affordable quality health care coverage contributes to the deaths of almost 50,000 Americans per year, or 150 Americans every day. So while Wendell was at Cigna, how did he justify his work? How did he justify misleading people in ways that could have life or death consequences? Well, part of it was pack mentality. Everybody else was doing it. And people that I, I liked, I, I felt, were moral people. They were engaged in this kind of work. Um, so you, you tend to think, uh, well, I guess it's okay if others are doing it. Uh, what's, what's, the wrong, what's wrong with this? And part of it was wanting to win. 
you want to be recognized for good work. You want to be recognized for being a team player. You want your, your team to win in the marketplace. So it becomes kind of a, uh, in a way, kind of a sport. Part of it was numbing himself. I began to drink too much, and I, I was numbing myself. I had misgivings about what I was doing. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but as long as I was drinking and self-medicating, uh, I would just go along with it. Wendell got to the point where he was drinking at least a six-pack every night to keep from thinking about what he was doing during the day. But the biggest part of how Wendell justified his work and why the three-part play became such a drama was the simple fact of being shielded from the people whose lives his spin doctoring affected. And I sometimes describe what the life is like of a top executive and how you're able to keep such a distance from uh, the consequences of your own decisions uh, and how those decisions affect other people's lives. And along with all it took to justify his work, those corporate jets with gold-plated flatware... They weren't even making Wendell happy. You know, I was not happy. I think uh, I had the trappings of what one would think would be success. We, uh, we had a nice house in a, in a, a very nice neighborhood, uh, uh, you know, two cars in the garage and money to send the kids to, to college and to do pretty much whatever we wanted. But uh, uh, you find yourself making house payments for a house that that may be more house than you need. Uh, it's, it becomes a treadmill. You feel almost enslaved. What I was doing certainly wasn't unique. It happens in corporate America, day in and day out. If what Wendell was doing and how he was feeling about it are not unique, How many other people in Wendell's shoes are just going along with the pack mentality and the very human desire to win? How many are numbing themselves to cope with work they're not proud of and the seemingly successful lives they're not actually happy with? How many would care deeply about the way their decisions affect people's lives if only confronted with the consequences? What is the opportunity for transformation among the power players of our corporate health insurance machine? There is individual responsibility there. It does lie with those executives uh, who uh, make sure that they never let themselves show up in a, 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 a clinic like remote area medical, they make certain that they are not really exposed to the consequences of their actions. So I don't consider them evil people, but I, I do think they, they do have that responsibility. They just don't take it. yet this isn't just about individual executives taking personal responsibility. Paraphrasing Upton Sinclair, it's difficult to get people to understand something when their salary depends on not understanding it. 
And by that token, it's difficult to get health insurance executives to do anything other than, quite frankly, what they are paid to do. The executives who are in the so-called C-suite, their bosses really are shareholders uh, and, and Wall Street financial analysts. You live or die by the numbers that you report to the SEC and to Wall Street every three months. Uh, and you have to meet those numbers, and if you don't, your job and your career is at risk. So how do we think about the interplay between the individual and the system? Between the personal responsibility of individual executives and a health insurance industry that demands profit maximization? Well, check it out. Like Soylent Green, the system is people. And the more power a person has, the more influence they have on the system and the more personal responsibility matters. Which is what makes the transformation of a power player like Wendell Potter so significant. I've done things I never would have imagined, certainly when I was growing up on Spear Ranch Road in, in Mountain City, Tennessee. But I, throughout the years, have, have tried to make sure that I've lived by something my mom always said to me, don't ever get above your raising. In other words, it's, it's important to know where you came from, to know your roots. I even have tattooed on my left wrist the outline of the state of Tennessee as a reminder of where I came from. And indeed, it was going back to where he came from, to visit family in Tennessee, which led him to the remote area medical fair that became a milestone in Wendell's transformation. What if we all did the equivalent of Wendell going to the remote area medical fair and took it upon ourselves to bear witness to the people whose lives we impact? What if fast food executives spent one day every year working as line cooks, or prosecutors spent a day each year in prison? The obvious question is how to ever get us to do that, but the exciting implication is that if Wendell's odyssey is any indication of what's possible, simply bearing witness to how we affect other people might be a win-win for everybody. Staying put and just going along is the easy way to go. Listen to your conscience and listen to your heart and uh, allow yourself to see how the rest of the world is living. Wendell Potter is a former health insurance executive turned industry whistleblower and healthcare reform advocate. Today, his advocacy points at the root of our corporate health insurance machine, tackling the influence of corporate interests on healthcare and on all other aspects of our democracy. In his shift from spin doctor to truth teller, Wendell is returning to his roots as a reporter with the launch of Tar Bell, an independent news organization exposing juicy stories of corporate influence, which means he's actually going back to being a truth teller. 
Gratitude goes to Patrick Cannon for connecting me to Wendell, Tavika Aronson, Phil Groman, Ali Walner, and Helena de Groot for their editorial guidance, and to the Germanicos Foundation for so thankfully supporting the show. Next up, we'll hear voices that we don't often get to listen to, the voices of young people, high schoolers, who are reckoning with bullying. I'm Stevie Lepp, and thank you for tuning in to Reckonings. Reckonings.